The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. I, this morning, hearing the the reading that uh, Bob read earlier, there was a line in it, and with many other words, he he bore witness and continued to exhort them. His translation said, plead with them. I'm going to plead with you this morning about Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. That's why our church exists. As a church, we say that we are Christ-centered, we are gospel-centered. What does that mean? Well, it means that there are many things, good things in the world that we could pursue, many things even as a church that we could do, helpful outreaches, things that we could do in the community, ways we can care for each other. But if we don't have one thing at the center of all that we talk about, all that we gather around, then we have missed the mark. And that one thing is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's one thing that anchors us when we come together, one thing that allows us to come before God. It's what Rachel had to grapple with as she was growing up. She thought there was more to it. No, that thing was Jesus Christ risen from the dead. One thing that gives us strength but reminds us of our weakness. One thing that humbles us yet leads our hearts to exalt. One thing that gives us hope when all hope seems to be lost. One thing that is certain when all else around us gives way. One thing that we cling to the salvation that has been won by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Among all the world religions and philosophies, Christianity is unique. It's unique for many reasons, but one of the most significant being the resurrection. Christianity is the only religion, the only philosophy with an empty tomb. Yes, it's true that many ancient Religions of the Greeks and the Romans, they had depictions of dying and rising gods. You might have heard of this, but these stories were no claim on history like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't have people who claim to have met Zeus, Hercules, or Athena in person. We don't have eyewitness accounts of Osiris or Dionysus' friends who knew them, let alone saw them die and rise again. And that's because the stories, these mythologies passed down constructed by the people, were always seeking to make sense of the world. That's what these were. They weren't eyewitness testimonies recording truth. There's simply no record of another resurrected Lord. Muhammad died. Buddha is not with us. Joseph Smith has gone to the grave, and not a single one of them ever came back to claim that they overcame death never to die again. And this is the story of every single one of us who's ever walked this earth except for one. And though some say that the resurrection claims only came about because ancient people were superstitious and open to the idea of a resurrection, that's just simply not true. Hear this quote from N.T. Wright speaking about others in Jesus' day who made some messianic claims, claiming to be the Messiah of Israel. He says, in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. This is of other messianic claims. They knew better. 
Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options, give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option, unless, of course, he was. We spoke last week about needing to examine our hearts regarding how we receive God's word and how we receive Christ. This week, we're specifically confronted with how will we receive the news of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that each and every person in this room and on this earth must grapple with. Tim Keller in his excellent book, The Reason for God, which we have uh, down at the welcome table, we'd love to give you as a gift if you are interested in it. He says, when I was studying philosophy and religion in college, I was taught that the resurrection of Jesus was a major historical problem no matter how you looked at it. Most modern historians made the philosophical assumption that miracles simply cannot happen. And that made the claim of the resurrection highly problematic. However, if you disbelieved the resurrection, you then had the difficulty of explaining how the Christian church got started. There are simply too many realities about the resurrection to ignore, many of which we're going to discuss today. If you choose to believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not take place then you have the difficult task of coming up with an alternative explanation that makes sense of all that we know. A task that's not yet been done in any convincing way, a task that will never be done because Jesus did rise again from the grave. Keller again says, Nothing in history can be proven the way we can prove something in a laboratory. However, the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact much more fully attested to than most other events of ancient history that we take for granted. Yet many still claim that the resurrection did not happen. Why? Because we're sinful. And we do not want to have to confront the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus really did rise from the grave, then he really was who he said he was. And if he really was who he said he was, then that means that there's a God. And if that means that there's a God, then that means he gets to call the shots. And if there's a God who gets to call the shots, then I don't. (laughs) And that means that things need to change about my life. However, what I hope we will be encouraged by this morning is the fact that not only is the resurrection one of the surest bits of recorded ancient history that we have, But it is the greatest news that we could ever hear. It makes sense of our world and it proclaims to us a hope that we so desperately need and we desperately long for. And to help us understand that this morning, we're going to read one of my favorite passages about the resurrection. And it actually is not written in one of the Gospels, but it's written by the Apostle Paul in his first known letter to the Corinthians. Now, many claim that the Gospels were fabricated tales, at least parts of them, that the resurrection of Jesus was this whisper-down-the-lane scenario 
that it was created centuries later as the myths of Greece and Rome had been, so too was the account of the resurrection of Jesus. However, that just simply does not hold water if you've looked into the history of it at all. What we're about to read was written by Paul, most likely around A.D. 55. That's just 20 or so years after the death of Jesus Christ. The majority of critical scholars, ones who do not believe in God, do not believe in the Bible, even acknowledge that Paul wrote this and wrote this around that time. This is before the Gospels themselves had been put to paper. And what I encourage you to do as we read is listen to this man. Like the claims of Christ, we only have a few options of what to do with what Paul writes here. Because he was so close to the time of Christ, it was very easy to prove what he was saying would be wrong if someone wanted to. So that means you have to decide, Paul is either lying, he's out of his mind, or he truly was proclaiming the truth that Christ was raised from the dead, seen by him and many others. What we're about to read is no centuries-old tradition growing into fantastic myth. This is a man writing shortly after the time of these events about things he himself saw so that others might know the truth. So, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, if you have it, chapter 15. I believe we'll also have it up on the screen for you. If you do not have a Bible with you today, that's fine. And I do want to say, I don't think I said this myself, I know Luke did, but if you're a visitor with us today, I'm so glad you're here with us. So, so glad. Thank you for choosing to spend your Easter morning with us, whether you wanted to be here or not. <laughs> I am glad that you are with us. And, and I, I share Bob's sentiment that uh, those of you who didn't make it to sunrise, you missed out. It was more than a continental breakfast, I'll tell you that. Uh, so maybe next year, but uh, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 26. I'm going to pray before we read because we need the help of the Spirit of God to understand His Word. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you that I get to herald this wonderful truth this morning. We ask that your Word would be made alive in our hearts. Father, that these words would come off of the page for us, that we would see their truthfulness. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for the heart of the men and women who have followed you over the ages, who have continued to proclaim the gospel. Thank you for this church, First Baptist Church of Malvern, that has done so for the past 190 years. Father, it's because of churches like this, because of saints who have written these scriptures for us, Father, that your word continues to go forth, and we pray it would go forth in our hearts today. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as one untimely born, 
he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I love this passage. I could stop there. Paul has said it all, but I won't. I love the sincerity. I love the conviction, the clarity with which Paul speaks. Paul did not always believe what he was saying here. Many of us in this room did not always believe what Paul was saying here. Paul, you may or may not know, once was a persecutor of Christians. He sought to put them to death. He did not believe in the resurrection of the Lord. Yet Paul was one among the many who encountered the risen Christ. And his life was radically transformed. From that point on, rather than persecuting Christians, Paul himself endured persecution for the sake of this message. But Paul doesn't proclaim this message simply because Jesus rose from the dead. Paul proclaims this message because he understands all the implications that the resurrection has for us. Implications that gave Paul hope, not just in this life, but in eternity to come. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the one basket where Paul put all of his egg hopes Paul knew that if he was wrong about this, that he was above all men to be pitied. He'd be peddling falsehoods and speaking heresy. He'd be clinging to a lie for his hope, yet Paul was so convinced that what he was saying was true, he was willing to go to his grave for preaching this good news. So we're going to follow Paul's argument here to help us all marvel at the resurrection of Christ. For some, I pray that for the first time you see its truth, and for others, I pray you feel afresh 
the wonder of the resurrection and the work that your Lord has done for you. The point of my message today is simple. Christ has been raised from the dead. We're going to look at three things that Paul uses to affirm this for us. Things that don't allow us to just simply cast this news to the side. Fulfilled prophecies, eyewitnesses, and the reality of unparalleled good news. So fulfilled prophecies. As we've said, one of the things that is unique about the Bible is that it makes a lot of historical claims that could easily have been disproven. This is because God knows that we need help sometimes trusting Him. And in His grace has not only revealed Himself to us, but revealed Himself to us in a variety of ways, in different contexts. And one of the ways that our Lord has spoken to us and has shown over time His trustworthiness and His power has been through prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy in the Scriptures is one of the things that the skeptic must wrestle with. We see in the Scriptures the Lord reveal His plans for the people of Israel to Abraham. We see Him foretell future famines and catastrophes that came to pass We see him foretell the coming of foreign nations in attack. He foretells destruction and turmoil in Israel before it happens. He made known the name of a king who had yet to even been born, Cyrus. He spoke of some events so specifically, even down to the very way that they would be carried out. And the event most prophesied about throughout all of the scriptures is the coming of Christ. The timing of his arrival, the nature of his being, and the work that he was going to accomplish. So what does the skeptic do with these prophecies? Well, one of the most often employed methods that we can use is to explain them away, saying that they were written after the fact. That's a simple way to sidestep the whole issue. However, there's problems with this. For one, claiming that all these were written well after the date that they were supposedly written you have to then say that these accounts are all work of liars, charlatans, peddlers of falsehood. And again, if you've read the scriptures, I would argue it's hard to swallow that pill. I've read a lot of false reports and things that we read in the scriptures do not strike me as the work of charlatans. That's going to be an unconvincing argument for a skeptic friend, but I do encourage you to ponder if it sounds like this is the work of a trickster. But there's another issue with such claims. Many of these claims have definitively proven to be false, that these were written after the fact. Take, for instance, Isaiah 53. Many are familiar with this passage. It's beautiful, and it speaks of the work that our Lord did for us on the cross. It reads, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. This is only part of that passage, and it's a beautiful description of the death of Jesus Christ, but the problem is that it was written centuries before Christ was born. That poses a problem. 
Those critical of the claims of Christianity recognize that this passage bears an undeniable similarity to the events surrounding Christ's death, which is why there are some scholars who claimed in the past that this was inserted later. This had to have been at least tweaked by Christians over the years. This sounds too similar to what Christ did. However, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, dating prior to the time of Christ, guess what was in there? Isaiah 53. This had been prophesied of before the time of Christ. And this is just one among many prophecies in the scriptures foretelling the coming of Christ. This is why Paul says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. When the Lord opened Paul's eyes to the truth, he was able to see clearly how the death and resurrection of Christ, his life, and all that took place were foretold from the very first pages of Scripture, right to Adam and Eve. One was coming who would crush the head of the serpent. This not only affirmed for Paul the trustworthiness of the Scriptures, but it affirmed that Christ truly was who he said he was. Fulfilled prophecy should have that effect on us as well. After his resurrection, Christ makes clear that the entirety of the scriptures testify about him. It was all written to point toward what he was going to do. We've been studying Matthew. Matthew loves to remind us of this, showing how numerous stories throughout the scriptures gave themes that Christ would fulfill made many direct prophecies in the scriptures about Christ in which he fulfilled. In the Old Testament, we read where the Messiah would be born. We read of the nature of his birth. We read what family he'd be born into. We read the nature of his ministry. We read about the betrayal he would experience by a close friend. We read about his death by crucifixion, which wasn't even a method of execution at the time of being written. We read about how he would be buried, and the list could go on. Some estimates show that there are as many as 50 very specific prophecies that were fulfilled by Christ, not counting the innumerable other prophetic themes that Christ fulfilled. One study showed that the likelihood of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's akin to taking 10 to the 17th power silver dollars, laying them end to end across the state of Texas, which would pile up two inches thick, then randomly walking out, having one of them marked, and picking the right one out of that pile. It's improbable. (laughs) And then, if you want to account for all of the prophecies, we're talking more about one out of 10 to the 157th power probability. Utterly, utterly improbable, yet it happened. The only reason to deny that these prophecies were fulfilled or the only reason to claim it was just coincidence comes from a prior commitment to rejecting claims of the miraculous, not wanting it to be true. And I want you to know, if you're someone here who does not believe this, this is not meant to shine the spotlight on you. We all reject Christ in the beginning. And even those of us who have accepted Christ, we struggle in ways to receive him. And some can still struggle 
wrestle with doubts and questions. That's just the nature of our hearts. But Jesus was raised from the dead. And if God is real and he exists, then nothing is impossible for him. He knows the end from the beginning, so there's nothing impossible for him to do, and there's nothing impossible about him having revealed the future, the coming Messiah, and the great salvation that he would do. There's nothing impossible about him having revealed that through prophets over time. Christ came just as the scriptures revealed. God kept his promises to us. And his coming was not in private. He didn't do it in some metaphysical realm or some vision that one single person might have had. He did it in time, in space, in front of hordes of people so that we might know Jesus really is the Christ. We've touched on fulfilled prophecies. We look now at these eyewitnesses. Paul says, And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Yet again, we come up against something that makes Christianity unique. Its central claims have always been backed up by public displays of God's power to verify his message and his messengers. This is very different than other religions. Take Buddhism, for example. Siddhartha Gautama was born around 563 BC, and as a youth, he went on a spiritual quest to understand the world. Legend has it, he took a series of four chariot rides, all of which revealed to him the suffering of the world. And after this series of endeavors, he finally sat down under a tree to meditate, and achieved enlightenment. He received, he said, the true answers to the causes of suffering and how to achieve permanent release from it. And from this then he began to teach and Buddhism began to take shape. Or consider Islam. At the age of 40, Muhammad, it is said, started to experience private visions and hear revelations. He soon realized that he had been chosen to preach to his own tribe about the one true God. Or let's look at Mormonism in 1820, a 14-year-old Joseph Smith sought solitude in a grove of trees and prayed to know which church was true. He then reported that God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared and spoke to him, revealing to him the truth, the private vision among some 100 other comp- uh, visions that he had comprise the basis of the Mormon faith. These religions began with a private revelation made to individuals we see something very different in the scriptures. And certainly so when we get to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, there are many private revelations that occur in the scriptures. I don't deny that. But they are so often accompanied with fantastic signs and affirmations to a broader group. Take Moses as one example. It would be one thing for Moses to say that he saw this burning bush and heard God talk to him. It's another for him to say that and then to display the power of God with sign after sign before the people of Israel and all the people of Egypt. One thing for him to go up on a mountain and say, God gave me these Ten Commandments. Entirely entirely another that all the while he was up on that mountain, it was engulfed in smoke and flame visible to all the people of Israel to see. 
God's presence descended visibly on the temple, proving that God was with his people. Public miracles occurred around the Ark of the Covenant. Prophets would work wonders before the peoples as they spoke and made known what God was revealing. Prophecy after prophecy was fulfilled over time, validating the messages that the messengers were giving. And when it comes to Jesus Christ, it certainly was no private revelation. Not only was Christ's birth accompanied with angels appearing to various individuals and groups, not only was his baptism accompanied by an audible voice of God heard from the heavens to all those in attendance, not only was his life full of miracle after miracle in front of crowds of all shapes and sizes, not only was his death a public and seen event, but his resurrection likewise was attested to publicly. This is an amazing list presented of all those to whom Christ appeared, the biggest group being 500 people at once. And not only that, but the record we have of the first witnesses of the empty tomb of the resurrection are women. This was an unthinkable move in the ancient world because Those in the ancient world discredited the testimony of women. They weren't allowed to testify in court. They weren't reliable. They weren't trustworthy. Ladies, I don't believe that. (laughs) Neither does God, because the first ones who saw the empty tomb and saw the resurrected Lord were women. If you're going to fabricate this story, you don't use women as your first testimonies in the time of Christ. But they're there because it happened. And then there's Paul. Paul, who once persecuted Christians, would himself go to his death, holding to his testimony that the risen Lord appeared to him as well. It would make no sense whatsoever for any of the apostles to go to their death claiming the resurrection when they so easily could have known that what they were saying was untrue. People might die for something that they don't realize is false. That happens. But it takes a very, very bullheaded person to die for a known lie. Do not be fooled. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact of history. Paul makes clear, most of whom are still alive. When he lists those who saw Christ, he's saying, don't believe me? Go and ask. He's inviting the challenge And this is true in all the gospel accounts. They reiterate, we have seen, we have heard, we have touched these things. Would have been so easy to discredit this. These people were still living of whom these things were being told. Yet the story persisted and it persisted under great persecution. And it grew at such a rate that the secular historians of our day struggle to explain how this small religious sect could grow with such speed in a culture completely opposed to it. Nothing else like the instantaneous and explosive growth of Christianity has ever occurred in the history of the world. The beginning of the church is a miracle in and of itself. This can only happen if the stories were true. If the tomb were not actually empty this growth could not have occurred. Because anybody could have said, hey, look, this isn't true. His body's right here. But the tomb was empty. We're told in the book of Matthew that to try and cover over this missing body, the authorities claimed that his body was stolen. 
But this also doesn't work. As we've said, the disciples went to their graves claiming that he was alive, but they would have been the ones that would have had to have stolen the body for this purpose. And that, again, doesn't even account for his appearance to hordes of crowds and various individuals after his resurrection. No, the only reasonable explanation is that the grave was empty and that he rose from the dead. These witnesses are not lying. This book is not intended to be a myth, but it's intended to record the truth. The scriptures have been scrutinized by countless people over the ages, and many who first approach the task of discrediting them wind up submitting to them when they realize their power and their truthfulness. The level of accuracy and historical record in the scriptures is unparalleled in the ancient world. The number of points of outside verification of events is significant. One cannot claim that these were intended to be myths. History shows that these accounts weren't written long after the time of Christ. Again, Paul wrote this just a few decades after Christ was dead. And already, what do we see? that the resurrection is at the core of Christian belief, right from the very beginning. It didn't grow over time. It was there from the earliest records we have. Far from the resurrection developing, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins and that he was raised on the third day. Christianity didn't start with a good teacher being slowly immortalized by his followers over the ages. No, Christianity started with a miracle-working prophet who claimed to be the Son of God, one with God himself, being crucified and then rising again from the dead. Christianity can only exist if the tomb was empty and the Lord is risen. Christianity rises and falls with the death and resurrection of Christ. If Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Again, Tim Keller says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. As I've been reflecting afresh this week, studying and praying, I've had fresh excitement over the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not just because it's history, not just because it's a miracle, but because of what it means for us. And this is the part of this passage in my message that I am most excited to preach about. The unparalleled good news of the resurrection of Christ. Keller again writes, each year at Easter... I get to preach on the resurrection. In my sermon, I always say to my skeptical, secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Now, Keller's not saying, I'm not saying we should believe things just because we want them to be true. But what he's saying is, this news, the truth of the gospel is so good that even if it weren't true, which it is, but if it weren't true, you should want it to be true. For many years, I devoted unhealthy amounts of time to apologetics. I felt shaky in my faith at times. I wanted facts and data to prove things to me about God. Is he there? And specifically what we call classical apologetics, trying to prove God and Christianity by facts and data. Now, there's nothing wrong with facts and data. Paul uses it here. 
He says, look at these prophecies. Look at these witnesses. These are things that you can see that that verify this claim. These things are true. However, the reality is we can always rationalize things no matter how far we have to stretch to do so. We can always come up with new objections and new questions. All of us, whether we acknowledge it or not, live by faith in this life. That's true of the atheist. It's true of the Christian. The atheist cannot prove that the world is all that there is. The atheist cannot prove that reason is even a reasonable thing. In fact, an atheist cannot reasonably assert that reason exists at all in a world of chaos. None of us are God. None of us knows all things. Thus, we're all given a world full of evidence, and we have to decide, do we believe in and put our trust in our maker, or do we put our trust in something else? And so facts and proofs and data are great, but because all of us human beings are sinful and in our pride seek to reject our God, it takes more than data to overcome our objections. Many people saw Christ perform miracles, yet did not believe him. Judas, one of his 12, betrayed him. Judas saw everything. Demons know that Christ exists, yet they reject him. In order for us to truly embrace the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we need, by the grace of God, the ability to see the beauty of what Christ has done for us. And it's not just a belief about something, but a trusting belief in something. Paul was not excited about the resurrection just because it happened. He was excited about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because they were the source of all of his hope and joy. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Though God created this world good, when Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree, sin entered this world. This sin not only brought about pain and death, but it brought about a great divide between us and our God. At our Lenten lunch this week, I brought up the fact that we all say there's only two things certain in this world, deaths and taxes, right? But we know for certain at least one of those things was not meant to be. Not sure how the Lord feels about taxes, but death was not the intent for humanity. But because of our sin, we experience death. Because of our sin, we've been separated from our God, and we've careened headlong into spiritual darkness. In the book of Romans, we read, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul understands that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that great historic event we just spoke of, proclaims that one day, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've believed that in fact he has been risen from the dead, if you've repented of your sins and turned to him as your Lord and Savior, then you have been given a hope that exceeds anything that has ever been promised in this world. Through Jesus Christ, your sins, all of them, large and small, were paid for on the cross. Because Christ served as the perfect sacrificial lamb on our behalf. Though he never sinned, he became sin for us so that we could have life in him. Jesus didn't deserve to die. He never sinned, but he died on our behalf. 
And in so doing, he made a way for us to be with him again. And then it's not only that we will be with him in spirit in this age. No, we have an eternal hope, an eternal existence to look forward to, forever delighting in and enjoying the eternal God of the universe, the greatest thing, the greatest one who has ever existed, and one who in his right hand exists pleasures forevermore. And this eternal existence won't just be floating around on clouds and playing harps. (laughs) No, the resurrection shows us that this eternal existence will be embodied. It will be like this life, only 10 to the 157th power better. When the body of Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he proclaimed that our bodies too will one day rise. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Jesus rose from the dead, he declared that the grave had no power over him. He never died again. He rose into the heavens again in front of his followers. I don't know what that looked like, but he went up and he will never die. And because of that, we're told that one day we too will have resurrected bodies with him. We all will face death in this life unless the Lord returns. But if we've trusted in Christ, we will one day arise with him once again in perfected bodies, never to die again. I was just watching this week an interview with the actor Rob Lowe and his sons. The interviewer was seeing how well his sons knew Rob Lowe, and he had them secretly write down answers to a question, and they said, if a genie gave Rob Lowe one wish, what would he wish for? Do you know what his answer was? Eternal life. Church, we don't need a genie to grant us that wish. It's been granted by God through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's not just that we will live forever, but we will have perfect, sinless bodies, which will exist in perfect, unending joy. Do you know what that means? We'll never sin again or be sinned against. All wars will cease. All pain will cease. We'll live forever without painful aches or pains. We'll live forever without looking in the mirror, seeing the deterioration and the decay of death. We'll run and not grow weary. We'll work and not be faint. If you have a physical ailment right now, the resurrection says to you, this is only a light and momentary affliction. If you're facing death right now, the resurrection says to you, this is only a light and momentary affliction. If you're persecuted, if you're in trial, if you're struggling with sin, if you're facing need and uncertainty, the resurrection says to you, this is only a light and momentary affliction. Church, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, but, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is risen? risen We can have all the facts and the data in the world. But if we've not seen our great need for the salvation that Christ gives, if we've not tasted the sweetness of the salvation that he offers us on the cross, then we will never believe. If you're here and you have yet to call upon the name of the Lord, I encourage you to consider all the things that you've heard today. We have great resources at our welcome table, one of which is The Reason for God by Tim Keller. I not only encourage you, but I challenge you to challenge your own assumptions and consider what if this were true? 
Because I guarantee you, you will find no greater hope. You know this world is broken. You know you long for something better. We all want to know where we came from. We all want to know how to fix it. We all want to know what lies ahead in the future. And none of us, when we're honest with ourselves, truly wants to die. Ideally, we'd live forever in full health and in fullness of joy. Well, I proclaim to you today, that's a real possibility for you. And it's been made possible by this man, Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection took place in time and space. And they happened so that you might be saved. No amount of good works can get you into heaven. All you must do is ask Christ for forgiveness and then follow him. What a glorious Savior we have, do we not? Jesus is real, Jesus is alive, and Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of the resurrection Thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that the truthfulness of all that he proclaimed continues to go forth, bear fruit, and expand. This message has covered the earth. We pray that if there's any in this room who've yet to receive this message in their heart, we ask that you would break into their hearts today, Lord. And for those of us who have, we ask that it would take deeper root that we would be strengthened, that we would find joy, that we would find comfort, that we would have hope, that we would walk out of this building with our heads held high because Jesus was risen from the dead. Thank you that you will never take your love away from us. Be with us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.